Welcome to Where's the Door, a literary anthology podcast featuring little-known or unpublished authors and poets from across all genres. I'm Carlos Molina. And I'm Joe Masiri. And in each episode, we'll present a collection of thematically linked short stories and poems. In this week's episode, all of the stories revolve around the theme of inevitability. You know, that feeling that something is completely unavoidable. It seems like the protagonists in these stories are fighting against something or towards something, and they want to have more control than they do. I think it's, it's funny that in these stories, we seem to get a feeling that the more we know or feel something is inevitable, the more we want to prevent it. It's, it's that human need for not relinquishing any control, right? It's something is inevitable. <laughs> if I can control it and I can change it. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say evitable. Every now and then it fits. All right. I think it's inevitable that we uh, start these stories. So without any further ado, we present to you our first story, Tucked In by Jeffrey Barkin. Originally published in Peacock Journal. Tucked In by Jeffrey F. Barkin. The night of the storm, I promised Mayan travels, a riddle on the road. I found our passports in the drawer. Mayan flipped through the pages of her menorah-marked past. Unimpressed, but tempted nonetheless by my dare, she scolded. Not unless you tell me first. Well's home. Fatigue strained her accent. Scratch your name here, I told Mayan, pointing to the white wall and handing her a pen. Mark the spot. My wife looked out the window down deserted Columbus Avenue. The rain won't stop, she announced, certain of the clouds. She said she'd checked the weather. The forecast warned of flash floods. We're the last flight out, I answered, playing the soggy papers I'd printed at work, red eyes bound abroad. Mayan froze, glaring at me. I'm opening wine, she said. I followed her to the kitchen. The cork creaked as she screwed, then popped. Take your jacket off, Mayan reminded me. I was still dripping wet. She wasn't satisfied. The umbrella? She asked, pointing toward my puddle on the floor. I laughed. Mayan's smile warped. I knew what she thought. I must look an awful mess by now. She'd seen me scattered too many times before. Lightning struck through the sky. Thunder echoed. Did you see that? I called down the hall. The gods are angry. Picnic, I suggested. Not by the window, Mayan answered. There were candles scattered about. I lit them and set them flickering around the room. Then I took a blanket off the couch and spread it in the nook. Drum roll. Reggae music. Mayan brought two glasses full and the bottle. We sat down on the floor. Cheers. Mayan gulped hers down. Why Rome? She asked about the tickets, fanning them out to dry. I don't know the city, I answered. We'd better get lost. You're rash. We don't have to leave New York. I shook my head and drank my glass to catch up. Mayan took my hand. Nobody is following you, she promised. If we stay here, there's a man named Lior. He'll come looking for me. I read our fortune. You have to believe me, Mayan. Wasn't I right about the mailman yesterday? He came an hour late. That's coincidence. Fine. Didn't I also predict the fire down the street? How many weeks in a row did I say that building would burn? Chance? Mayan begged. You couldn't have known. Watch the lights, I said, reaching for the corner of Mayan's dress. I tickled her knee. She flinched and seized my hand. There came another blue bolt from heaven and a sound-breaking boom. The lamps flickered but didn't go out. Mayan stood up. I asked her where she was going. There are more candles in the drawer. She answered, lighting a match. The room grew yellow, bright and warm. I brought the tickets to the counter. Dance with me, I asked, 
The reggae fools laughed. Mayan wouldn't answer. You know you're coming with me. I was firm when I had her in my arms. We can't stay here. Yesterday you said a man named Larkson was after you. Today it's Lior. Mayan answered, swallowing more than she could drink. I squeezed and kissed her. She hated me. Believe me? I begged. Let go, Arlan. You're mad. When the record stopped, Mayan tidied up. I tried reading a book. Come dinner hour, the bottle of wine was gone. I opened another. Not much we can cook. Mayan said, remembering the poorly stocked fridge. Eggs, I suggested. Mayan nodded. I brought my guitar to the kitchen where Mayan was cooking. She'd covered the omelet. The pan was steaming. She'd added spices, and the room smelled of wholesome mushrooms. Cheese simmered and fried. I snacked on Israeli sour crunch pickles, playing all my songs. Here and there, I'm sure Mayan laughed. Tell me your plan, she said, stopping me mid-tune. If I tell you, you'll come along? I'll consider. We fly via Berlin. I've arranged a hostel. How long? That's up to God. Arlan, I'm in no mood to play atheist disciple. Don't smirk. You always smirk. I crowded her. I'm trying to cook. I want to kiss you. Now? Yes. Go read your book. I sat down at the bar and gave her space. Rain's coming down in sheets, I said, pointing out the window. Windy, too. A pipe will leak. No more prophecies, please. I'll get the bucket, I said. I got up and went down the hall to fetch the plastic pail we kept in the closet. How do you know the spot? Mayan asked, watching me set the bucket down near the couch. Don't you hear the flush? The pipe runs overhead, I answered, pointing up. If the pipe bursts, I don't want to pay rent anymore. We won't pay if we leave tomorrow. That's the idea, Mayan. We'll disappear. Take your plate. We hurried to get cozy on the floor. You're hungry, I said, observing Mayan's first bites. I drink too much. We sat cross-legged, our backs against the sofa. The cascading curls down Mayan's dark neck drew my gaze. I kissed her there, softly. If the pipe leaks, I'll go with you. Mayan said. You think I'm crazy, don't you? You're crazy, yes. I see the future. Have I ever been wrong? I don't know. Remember my journal, Mayan? Your book burned, Erlan. Nobody will find your poems. Lior finds them. Who is Lior? Think back to September. I kept telling you the towers would fall. You had a premonition, nightmares, that's all. I knew the day, Mayan. I knew the times. I knew the people who would die. Then why didn't you act? I felt ashamed. I didn't believe, I answered, finishing my wine. People would think I'm crazy. We ate. We didn't talk. Where did you get the olives? I asked. The market. Downtown Gourmet? Mayan nodded. That was tasty, I said. Mayan fussed my hair. You need a shower, she said. No time now. There won't be any water when the lights go out. Dessert? Chocolate and dates? Let's play Yahtzee. Sure. We set up. The eye of the storm was passing overhead. The rain had stopped. Outside, there was a green glow in the clouds. Full house, I said, calling Mayan's first roll. The dice fell exactly. Three twos, two fives. She wrote down her score. I'm sunk on ones, I predicted. The dice fell as I'd pronounced. Let me guess this round, Mayan said. I'll roll threes. She was wrong. I'm tired. I'll fall asleep before the pipe leaks. You won't. If you fill that pail up and trick me. She warned, pointing a finger at my chest. I'll take every bet, Mayan. The ceiling will burst. Isn't there anything we can do? I shook my head. Not until tomorrow. If you know the pipe will burst, try to stop the leak. There must be something we can do. 
There's nothing. Old pipes leak. Ours are old. Your turn. I rolled three sixes, the devil's own. Mayan stood up. She put on a jazz record. Horns tensed to sweet rhythm, swinging low, brassy blues. Arlan, you're no fun, she said, returning. Love is all coincidence, but you leave nothing up to chance. What should I do, Mayan? I'm patient. I know you'll come with me to Rome. What will I do in Italy? You'll wander. We'll both wander. We won't stay there long. Will we always be running? I didn't answer. The storm's eye crossed. Thunder cracked. A door slammed shut. Now the lights go out, I said. The lights went out. The record slurred to a stop. Our eyes adjusted. The candles flickered in the dark. Mine snuggled in close. I kissed her forehead. I held her breast. I counted seconds aloud. Mayan closed her eyes. She was tucked in my arms, tucked in to sleep. The ceiling streaked along a seam. The paint tore open. There was a drip in the bucket. Then another. Life by Alicia Giacchetti. Life. It has many colors. Sometimes they're dull. Sometimes they're so vibrant, it's like you're existing in a never-ending prism. And maybe if you angle yourself in the sunlight just right, you could be trapped forever in a rainbow. Wouldn't that be nice to notice all the blues and purples and pinks? to not take them for granted when rushing, racing into the next moment? Why let the grays and browns and blacks of your day mute out everything else that makes it an expressionist painting, a work of art? It's my goal to accept that the dark provides contrast to the light. The shadows help to define the edges and shapes of my joy. But it must never drown out or muddy the fabulous palette I'm using to create my world. Because in my world, beauty must never be taken for granted. It must be celebrated so richly that you can feel the loss of it. And there will be loss. And there will be devastation. But even the drop of a salty, fat tear can catch a glint from the sun and for a moment, create a prism. This is Tyler Lawrence reading Meriwether Post Pavilion. When you're drunk, you still text me. It's never detailed, always brief. Hi, friend, or yo, or but you still text me. When your mind doggy paddles in the tides of Belgian brew judgment, and your motor skills play dizzy bat in the open streets of the district at night, you find your way to my digital footsteps with loose fingers looking for lonely. I'm sorry I don't always reply. I've been trying to find my way back to the sunflower stem flagpoles you planted in the open fields last August. Back when you were that bonfire stargazer that tried to hold your arms open for opportunity, but grew tired of waiting for embrace. You left my heart waiting in a parking lot that was just a lot like Columbia, Maryland. It never left the spot where I first kissed you. I wish you could learn to love you the way I learned to love you, because maybe then you could learn to love me. So for that last poem, Meriwether Post Pavilion, make sure you head over to bibmedia.tv so you can check out the formatting of it because the poet in this case had an interesting arrangement of the text where the majority of the poem is left justified and the ending of the poem is right justified on the page. And it really does change how you might interpret uh, the meaning of the poem. So definitely go there and you can check out the rest of the stories and poems in their full text as well. But poetry, as always, is open to interpretation. The way I thought it related to this whole episode is the inevitability of lost love and that drunk dial. And everybody's felt unrequited love or everybody's gone through a breakup. 
And sometimes these things happen and you can't help thinking about the other person and your mind, especially after a couple of drinks, your hand just acts automatically. And next thing you know, you're sending la, 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 la to somebody at two in the morning. And it's a bad idea. I think that that talk, you know, talking about the dark times, I think that ties in perfectly with uh, poem 15 uh, and and the theme of, of life there, because, well, we see all those beautiful colors and those are the good times of life. The dark times are inevitable and whatever it is, no matter how dark they are, is up to the person who's experiencing them. But without those dark times, we can't truly appreciate all the colors and the bright times in our lives. So they're inevitable. This next story starts off in the darkest of times, and where it goes from there is not entirely clear. It's not necessarily optimistic, and maybe they have a chance to alter their fates, but destiny seems to be coming down the pike regardless. Carlos, do you believe in free will? I do believe in free will. You know, it's it's really interesting because, um, you know, it, it, someone had me reconcile science and free will. And if at a molecular level, our actions are nothing but more than a series of neurons firing that lead us to take an action and we have no control over what neurons are firing when, then, then how do we have free will? It's interesting you try to mess with the scale of this story because the scale of time is also interesting to deal with. It's funny you bring the scale of size into this because time is very malleable on a different scale. So now let's just jump into the story and see how it moves forward to its inevitable end. This is Capsule by Jax Lepage. Luce locked the side entrance of the clinic. From the dark of the vestibule, she scanned the arcade. It was later than she'd thought. A few passers-by hurried along the bank of street lamps. The cafe was closed, its tables stacked, its heaters shackled. The moon had slid like a hook through the dusty gallery above. In its light, Luce felt a slight tug, but to where she did not know. At the corner, about a hundred meters away, a van waited. Headlights off, engine running, exhaust billowing out to the cold. The shadow of a man faced the clinic's main entrance, smoking as he leaned against the passenger door. The project cable stated an emergency, but that scene at the corner unraveled a chill down Lucia's neck. No part of it resembled an emergency. She looked herself over. Her navy blazer was crumpled, a brass button missing. Her face felt like a cold, valueless slab of meat. No time anymore for showers or exotic creams. She had healthy crops of hair now in the most countercultural places, while the tips of her fingers had cracked. Not to mention that her remedy for this, those new soft leather gloves, had been forgotten on the scan, precisely where they weren't supposed to be. You're falling apart. A voice scolded. A mother's voice, a professor's, a boss's. It's always forward. Impulsively, she grabbed at the handle of the outer door, then again hesitated, feeling the metal warm in her hand. Her stomach audibly tendered its protest. She was starving. She was exhausted. Half the neurology department swiped in last month's raid. The operators had dropped right out of the storm and peeled back the roof like it were foil. These days, it didn't matter which compound was behind it. They wouldn't get the doctors back. And for Luce, this meant an unending series of double shifts and night calls. No, this wasn't falling apart. She was only doing what had to be done. Falling apart would be getting in that van before having a proper dinner. It was holding her shit all day that really felt like falling apart. The driver still hadn't spotted her. She was perfectly positioned to walk home unnoticed and stop at the late night ramen shop on the hill. After all, she'd made no formal agreement to abet the project. Sure, they'd notified her of an emergency, but then not even bothered to ask her availability. But she didn't really want to go home either. Home had become a tomb. Nothing to eat except condiments and no booze, she'd made doubly sure of that. The whole apartment was filled with furniture she couldn't remember using, books she probably would never read, most of them holdovers from university courses. The guest room hadn't been open in months, and there was still dog food on top of the fridge from Habsburg, who'd been dead for almost two years. Everything there seemed referential, the ceremonial objects of a culture she knew nothing about. 
Closing her eyes, she felt again the slight tug, as when she lay down to sleep and saw only the empty streets. From these there came directions and quarters that did not exist. To be nowhere, to be indefinite, truly lost, a blank spot on a blank map. This was what would clear her mind. But this cowering in the vestibule was fast becoming ridiculous. Again, this was not her voice, but with a click the handle was turned. How long since she'd been allowed outside the compound, she wondered suddenly. She'd arrived the day of her last boards. Jesus, so since then only twice. There'd been the trip to the compound-sponsored resort on the lagoon. That was like being locked in a shopping mall with randy old drunks, men and women alike. Then the conference in Oslo. That had been an actual nightmare when the facility was infiltrated by rival operatives and several dozen scientists were killed in the siege that followed. The voice resurfaced. If not today, then tomorrow. The door swung open before her. It was also much colder than she'd thought. There was probably a fucking van at her apartment, too. Engine on. The operator leaning against the passenger door, smoking. There was no escape. She stepped out from the vestibule and spit on the cobblestones. Grumbly, she strode towards the main entrance. The savage cold of the arcade doused her reverie. The van charged into the tunnel. The panel between Lucia and the operator was blacked out and remained closed. Looking out, a spill of white tiles and blue lights. There was no one else on the road. How the fuck did I get into this mess? Shakily, Lucia exhaled and considered for the first time that this was her fault. Admittedly, it had been her duty to speak up. It was part of her oath. But the fact remained that she'd sent the first cable. Seven project researchers had come to the clinic that month, all with the same symptoms. Headaches, temporal confusion, disassociative events, hysteria. The imprints showed severe brain damage, their basal ganglia is looking like Emmett Taylor, as if they were psychotics or entering advanced stages of dementia. Her duty, that had a nice ring to it, but she'd also not been blind to the opportunity. She knew that well, but she wasn't one to be shamed because of her ambition. She thought that perhaps this could be her Marie Curie moment. If the project was at the forefront of the sciences, she wanted her peace. Besides, it was about time someone stuck it to the project a bit, what with the billions they sucked from the compound's coffers, and all the research they buried in-house and on the private markets. Notwithstanding, her colleagues had begged her to stay quiet. The operator escorted Luce across the courtyard to the narrow gateway of the laboratory's first shell. He maintained a firm grip on the back of her arm. We could just hold hands, she offered, but the driver didn't so much as twitch in acknowledgement. The guard at the gate was flustered by the late arrival. He grumbled to the operator. You should be asleep, my boy. All night it's just been in and out, however you like. Strangers, every one of them. But he did not speak directly to Luce. He followed the procedure to the letter, and the operator just leaned back on the iron gate, smoking, until Luce's documents were forfeit and she'd been locked in the scan booth. The booth opened onto a metal gangway that spanned the void between the first and second shell. Hot air roared from ventilation shafts 50 meters below. Immense, windowless walls forged on, high into the night, and at their crest, spotlights and the bristle of defensive armaments. Luce continued across alone. At the second shell, she was questioned from a murder hole five meters above her. The question solely concerned the procedures of the first shell, and over the noise of the ventilation shafts, she was, in effect, made to repeat her account several times. Waiting at the third shell, she became irritable but lucid. For over an hour, she'd been left in a pipeway with nowhere to sit. She began to wonder if she'd just walked herself into a detainment facility. More than ambition, she reasoned, it had been defiance that had led her here like a cow. Strange that it wasn't defiance of the project or defiance of Luce, the doctor. It was her defiance of that defiance, she thought. Against Luce, the prattle-minded girl, the one who'd never practiced piano, the one who'd refused the summons of the dinner bell, the one who'd forgotten her new gloves on the scan, dreaming in a cold vestibule of being lost. Yes, the one who'd wandered into medicine to silence that scolding voice. This had all led her to a pipeway with nowhere to sit. Carelessly, she smirked to herself and lay back on the floor. Without warning, the floor shuddered into motion. Metal scraped on concrete. The entire pipeway tottered, then jerked upwards at a confusing angle, knocking Luce back down across the floor. The discombobulation lasted two minutes, 
and when at last the door opened, a tall man awaited her with a perched smile, arms clasped behind his back. Jeans, pastel t-shirt, a two-day beard, a relaxed look, except in the shoulders where something in the angle belied strict instruction. Perhaps he's a dancer, she thought, looking up grimly. So sorry about the ride, he offered, helping her up. I've told the engineers to find another way, but they don't seem to listen to me unless they're made to. She recognized his voice immediately. He'd been part of the phalanx of officials who debriefed her after the raid. She was certain of it. She'd grown to hate them all unreasonably, of course, but it was his well-wishing, his calculating warmth as he detailed the swift personnel replacements and the swift repairs to the clinic that had scared her the most. A pervasive feeling, as it were, in a backwards way, implicating her, as if asking, So why didn't they take you, you little fucking bitch? And now the contrast between the two figures was unnerving as if he'd hoped she wouldn't make the connection. Gone were the stone lips and that arachnid quickening to his appendages. Here was an easygoing member of her distraught generation. Don't worry, this husk seemed to say. He led her down the empty hallway, gesturing welcomingly toward her arm, precisely where just as the operator had held her. Dr. Lucia Asbem, he was saying warmly. I'm so glad we finally met. You see, I'm the agent now heading the project. All apologies for the short notice. We know you've had your hands full. You look exhausted. Lush cleared her throat, giving him what must have seemed a shy smile. I look fine. She thought. Fuck off. I'm just trying to help. She managed blandly. Aha, uh -huh, he said. And that's precisely why we've asked you here. We need your help, desperately. The agent had unlocked a short purple door and was standing aside for her, gesturing to the dim interior. When she straightened, they were in a well-furnished anteroom. A box of cigars occupied the stone table between two armchairs. A stained glass lantern curtsied from the bookshelf. I'm so sorry, but we must take a few precautions. The agent continued, pushing through the panel door. Our situation has progressed drastically in the last week. He paused for effect, scratching his belly out of a common awkwardness. Lucian yawned and feigned a complete lack of interest. The second room was identical to the first, but without the furnishings. Instead, two helmets hung from the ceiling, like those from old diving suits, with heavily riveted metal and a small portal of glass. Gently, he tucked the helmet over her hair. Through the portal, the wall's opacity changed, and beyond that, in the rising darkness, she could sense a vague, grated glow that concealed something alive, as within a confessional. The agent's voice erupted inside her head. You see, Dr. Asbem, the slow game has ended. All that unpleasantness, the raids, the transom spirals, the slip maneuvers, all that will soon become obsolete. Do you know what we've been up to? He asked coyly. Lush clenched her jaw. I've heard you're trying to bring back the dinosaurs or something. She blared back. Her voices clapped over her ears. The agent laughed politely. <laughs> yes, in a way you're absolutely right. Time travel. Again, he paused for effect. Lush suppressed laughter. Not to save the dinosaurs, to save us from the mistakes of our ancestors. Problems you see have never marched in lockstep with the ability to solve them. Despite our optimism and toil, we can be outstripped. We can be, how do you say it? Late to the party. Lush shifted stances, pocketing her hands. Inwardly, she whistled in an empty street. The same fucking speech had been in the bulletins for years. It was every technocrat's wet dream, based on the exact presumption that had made circumstances so dire in the first place, that no matter the consequences of progress, the technocrat would always be there for the solution. It was like a giant fucking Ponzi scheme. She couldn't believe she'd been made to wear this stupid helmet only to be fed regurgitated cant. She took a deep breath. Worse still, the accumulating sourness and moisture in the helmet was becoming unpalatable. More than food now, she wanted to brush her teeth. We're asking you to help us, in one small way, to save our species from extinction. Our species. She echoed. Time travel, he explained, was a winner-takes-all proposition. Though it had thus far proved impossible to tabulate the ramifications of a single change to the past, the power to change alone raised possibilities that were, in short, complete. This, she might guess, was the root of their emergency. One of the compounds had executed the total integration of a rival. That was, he assured her, unprecedented. Not a raid, an occupation, the agent clarified. 
at great cost and an open defiance of international law, all, mind you, with no assurance of success. Undoubtedly, it had been a calculated risk, and the single compensation adequate for such risk would have been the promise of a major advancement in time travel. What does any of this have to do with me? Lush broke in irritably, picking your nose out of helplessness. I contacted you concerning potential pathogenic exposures in your laboratories, not about time travel. Ignoring this, the agent could no longer conceal his smugness. Our intelligence indicates that indeed they are quite close to a breakthrough. So close, they likely no longer doubt it can be done. But we know too, they're still missing one vital constituent. Lush imagined he winked at himself inside the helmet. We know this because we have solved time travel, and it is our intention to perfect it before anyone finds out, ever. The capsule would leave that night. For Lush, the introductions were curt and perfunctory. S, the archaeologist, and Stad, the project brass, followed by a hurried explanation of the capsule's layout, delineated mostly by hand gestures and one crude sketch. During the briefing, she was banished to the office kitchenette with a television that wouldn't turn off. Her role was straightforward, to complete routine examinations of the other two crew members, as well as the three test composites she'd proposed in her original cable. This was no small coup, but other than that, she was allowed nothing. No information on what exposures were to be expected from this new technology. Furthermore, she wasn't to leave the capsule except in case of emergency. She was even forbidden any personal effects, including clothing, and was required instead to wear a baggy purple jumpsuit. S joked it was compostable. In all, the capsule would be gone a half hour, but to where or to when was denied her. Only the emptiness of the kitchenette strained her. No decorations, no buffet table, no champagne. No one even seemed to be on staff that night. Even in these shadowy, maniacal organizations, a major breakthrough such as this seemed to warrant at least a cake or something. Perhaps, like anything, it had become routine. The best she could drum up was instant coffee, a can of garbanzo beans, and half a box of stale butter crackers. After two hours under the television's baleful watch, she was again, anticlimactically, taken by the arm and led to a neglected transport bay. A big tarp had been left unfolded across the entryway. Water had pooled in several places. The heat shields protecting the wooden crates were facing the wrong way. In the near corner hung several empty animal cages. The bay's only light was propped up by a havoc of tool trays. A dark, pounding techno rebounded off the concrete. Cow! The agent shouted. Yo, yo! God damn it, turn that off. A wrench rang out against the floor. The music softened. A small, cherubic woman leaned out against the bow of the ship. She was grinning, shirtless, covered in grease. Her welding helmet was cocked off to the side, and lighting a cigarette with the welding torch, she squinted into the darkness. Yeah, dude? She said. I can't see a fucking thing with these lights. Where'd you go? Luce struggled to stay awake as the ocean flickered silver and black to the horizon. It wasn't long before Cal summoned her to the capsule with a reassuring squeeze of the hand. You're gonna have a ball out there, kiddo. Cal whispered as she walked Luce in and helped her onto the assembly. And with that, the hatch was sealed. A pump faltered, sputtered, resumed. Then the drop. Thick and heavy. The floor lights swelled out. There was a locking sensation as the air depressurized, and Lucia's ears plugged painfully. She bit down on the mouthpiece. Involuntarily, she imagined that her life flashed before her eyes, but quickly she reimagined this as a subconscious attempt at humor, or evidence of her own triteness. The vibrations, however, soon cut off all thought. A tingling that built in waves from the pelvis into the mouth, and at that she lost consciousness. Lush was revived first. In a stupor, she retrieved the kit from her locker and performed the first round of scans. She then woke S, taking her vitals and running through the list of psychological determinancies, which completed the composite. Oh, you're fine. Lush went on chattily, meeting S's quizzical look. Better than fine, you're excited. S stretched nervously, touching the low ceiling. She towered over Lush. I could have just told you that. 
She groaned, eyes loosening for an instant. He'd be fucked up if I wasn't. You think so? Luce replied absently, applying the dropper to the back of Stad's neck. A tendril of drool wagged from his mouth. Will you at least tell me what time of year it's supposed to be? As stopped dressing. Her skin was immense, shadowy, almost glacial. She fixed on Luce, saw a slender, densely, even darkly detailed woman, and shrugged. Ask that one. He's supposed to be the one in charge. Or you could just take a quick peek for yourself. She added slyly. I couldn't. Luce smiled, riding Stad's head. It's too late for that now, anyway. Stad grunted. <sighs> He's a sheer joy, that one. Your bodyguard? Luce asked, and there was a small glint off her voice. As glanced up from her boots with a pale grin. Who knows? She said. I think he's just here to make sure we don't get carried away. As soon as Stad was extricated from the assembly, but before he had his legs, he looked at his watch and crashed face first into the grating. You should have done me first. He said after he'd vomited. Lelouch followed his bright gray eyes about the chamber, then continued to restore the kit. That wasn't made clear, she said. But I'm sorry. We're behind schedule now. Behind schedule? S broke in. Yeah, behind schedule, Stad said. He brought his weapon down from the locker. 345, the capsule leaves, no matter who's in it. That's firm. It's 316. He pointed to the clock set into the hatch. In other words, doctor, just hit the blue button. Everything else is automatic. You don't wait, you understand? You want me to leave you here? Lush said. The contempt in her voice surprised even herself. That doesn't make any sense. This isn't a discussion. Stad snapped, then he turned from the woman to dress. Stad and S vanished from the hatch above. Lush had glimpsed only blackness, and a swatch of cool air had broken over her. There was salt in it, yarrow, whetstone, rust. This gave her a lonely feeling. She realized even her pockets were empty, while somewhere in the heart of the capsule, metal tingled as it cooled. Her curiosity swelled until the capsule was filled with it, leaving no room for her to move. Who could ever find her here? A new life paired off, thrown from the hatch into a world still wet with blood, the cities taloned to the hilltops, the farms flushed to the rivers. There'd be footpaths wending from the ravines to high meadows where shepherds would give her suspicious looks from the shade. Lions still, wolves, and there'd be a talk of a wayward woman in an absurd purple gown, but she'd wander as far as it took to the lush courts in the south where her medical training would be passed off for healing powers and a plush arrangement would be made. A villa with a courtyard and of course the ignorant servant boy smoothed by the Mediterranean sun, grasping like a calf at all that was put to his lips and the capsule she imagined swayed to the thought. The bell rang twice. The hatch. Luce jumped up. How long could it have been? No way. She hadn't lost it already. It had been what? Five minutes? Ten tops? A third ring. On the screen, Stad and S were shown breathing into the lens. Luce retied her hair. She'd missed her chance. Shit. S said, dropping down the ladder. Shit, shit, shit. Stad secured the hatch and dropped down behind her. He kept putting his fingers to his cheeks as if to ensure they were still there. Luce looked between them. Both were dripping wet. What happened? She asked. That's not your concern, doctor. Stad said. He was already at the control panel. Get your supplies in the locker. We're going back. Now. Something's wrong. S said, her voice fading. She was panicking, Luce thought. The time. You don't know shit, Stad blurted, breathless. It's just the wrong goddamn place. This isn't a fucking teleporter. S snarled suddenly. She threw her pack against the wall. Sweat was limning her chest. We land exactly where we're dropped. That's the part anyone can do reliably. The tide's coming in, Stad said, holding his breath for a moment. He snapped the control panel closed. We're on target. The capsule says we're on target. You're telling the fucking archaeologist that that was the fucking temple. S said, now standing over Stad. His thumb played at his chin. I'm telling you what I'm seeing here, okay? 
Anyway, it looked like some sort of temple. Yeah, and I'm just telling you what I'm seeing. That scowled, wringing her hands. And that happens to be the single fucking reason why I'm here. To tell you what the fuck I'm seeing. The ruins of one temple are on this site. The fucking temple. Not this. Lush stepped between them. Fine. She said softly. This is fine, but it doesn't matter at this precise moment because we're leaving. Essenstad fell silent. The capsule listed subtly. The tide. Es muttered. A single shiver engulfed her immense body. The three waited, affixed on the assembly, as the countdown beeped from the control panel. Then the lights flickered, and there was silence. Nothing had happened. Okay. Stad said. Okay, we need to stay calm. He extricated himself and checked his watch. At 4.30, they'll send a second capsule. That's the procedure, in an hour. And let me guess, you just want us to wait in here. S said coolly. On cue, the capsule lurched, a wash sounding faintly. I don't want anyone out of my sight. Stad, you saw for yourself, there's no one here. These are necessary precautions. He said between his teeth. Jesus, is this more butterfly effect bullshit again? S looked to Lush for support, but she was still fixed on the assembly, staring at the listless arms of the instruments. If we stay here, S said, we're going out with the tide and that'll be that. Stad again pumped his jaw. He was kicking at the grate in annoyance. And then they'll never be able to find us. The same swatch of cold air, the same sense, the same blackness, but now the tide sounding out of vast enclosed space. Icy water to the waist. Lush clung to S's pack, stumbling over the rubble beneath the surface. Then there were stairs, and up they went, coming out onto... what was it? A worn carpet. In that corner. Stad whispered. Come on, hurry up. I can't see a fucking thing. S said loudly, turning on her flashlight. No light! He snatched the flashlight and buried it in his jumpsuit. The tide echoed distantly through the hall. Here, help me drag this. A few rotten pieces of furniture, an armchair, a couch, a table, now set a makeshift barricade about the corner. Do we have anything to eat? Asked Lush suddenly. There are six emergency rations, Stad said, to be used only in case of emergencies. S scoffed. And this isn't an emergency, Lush stated blandly. Please, just shut the fuck up, both of you. Like a good bitch, S said. God. Don't start that shit again, Stad said. He dropped back against the wall and rubbed his eyes. Not now. Yeah, you little cunt speak only when you're spoken to. It's not the fucking time, S. What is it, Stad? Would you prefer us brushing each other's hair? Would that make you feel like you have proper authority? Stad didn't point the weapon at S. Instead, he turned to face her with an unkempt smile, gripping the weapon with both hands. Dr. Essen, he said... This conversation won't prove productive for either of us. Please come over here, sit your big ass down, and stay the fuck out of sight for the next 40 minutes. As met his smile, then looked away and lowered herself cautiously down on the couch. Lush sat back beside S's head. Her stomach squealed, but she realized she was too hungry to be scared. As her eyes adjusted, she watched the hall take form, the intricate moldings and wainscoting, the French doors along the near wall, stuffed closed by the vines, and what seemed to be a mural that wrapped the entire room. What's outside? Lush whispered to S. We're not going outside. Stad shot back, overhearing. Thirty-five minutes. Lush cocked her head. He met her curious gaze, and this time it was he who broke away. She seemed to consider Stad's response carefully continuing to watch him beside Long as he inspected his weapon and fooled vainly with the sleeves of his jumpsuit. Finally, Lush got up from the couch. Well, at the very least, I can inventory our emergency kit. She explained. In case we have an emergency. Stad slid the kit from beneath his legs with a grimace. Have at it. She knelt beside him and fumbled through the kit in the dark. The contents she slowly laid out on the carpet and rose, muttering the checklist under her breath. Pausing, as if missing something, she came up into a squat. She appeared occupied by something inside the kit. Then, with a practiced swiftness, she sprung up and jammed a syringe to Stad's neck. 
His head convulsed against a syringe, driving it deeper. Lush cursed. Next, his hand shot up, freezing, then breaking apart. She kept a steadying knee on his weapon. Removing the syringe, she dabbed away the tongue of blood loosed under his collar and finally propped him securely between the table and the wall. S had sat up on the edge of the couch, rigid. I had a thought. Lush began sheepishly. Trembling still, she returned the items from the floor to the kit to occupy herself. Do I want to hear it? S responded tightly. This looks, well, terrible, I know that. But he'll be up in three hours or so, angrier perhaps, but otherwise the same, unfortunately. She cut herself off with a nervous chuckle. I'm sorry. My thought was, why the weapon? That's all. That was the thought I had. S's chest heaved. In case... She swallowed. Wait, what do you mean? It's for protection. Sure. Lush replied. For protection. But I went through our emergency gear. There's medical supplies, but no weapons. Nothing for us. In an emergency for protection, you'd want us all to be armed, no? We're not trained to. Anyway, say something does go wrong. Say it, it does it make any sense that we'd want to shoot our way out of it? It doesn't matter if you buy the whole butterfly effect bullshit, but a shootout? And what if we're all killed and all that's left is the gun? Maybe... S faltered again. M maybe it's calculated risk. Lush paused. What I think is that the only real risk is us. Us getting stranded here like we are now. Our knowledge, our genes, and so on. Those would be the effects that warrant precaution. But the other capsule, that's the precaution. And if it doesn't come? You think? It's for us. Lush said wearily. The weapon is for us, to tie up loose ends in case something goes wrong, and it has. S was now asleep on the couch with the weapon resting between her pooled breasts. Her face had been buried in a litter of fine blonde curls. Stad was slumped behind the table, his breaths whistling out. But Lush couldn't sleep. The emergency blanket made an irritating crinkling noise whenever she moved. She and S had waited out that half hour. The second capsule hadn't come. They'd found some small comfort in eating the emergency rations, but the feeling of helplessness had not begun to corrode her attention. Lightning shivered over the ocean, absent of wind or rain or thunder. The waves sloshed about below, moodily. This was the sound Lush clung to in hope that it might lull her to sleep. However, beneath it there was a different sound altogether, the clank of metal on metal. Downstairs, her eyes were finally adjusted. The landing zone was in the ruins of a rotunda, its backside ripped out by the ocean, its roof gone, its mezzanine, what sections were left, dangling limply. It looked perhaps like an opera house. She topped the last bank of rubble and looked down into the tide. Tipped over and lolling lazily together on the concrete were two capsules. No lights came on when she opened the hatch. The stench of vomit was overwhelming, and the tide was up to her chest. Hello? No answer. Fuck. She said, rolling up her sleeves, and crawled in. Using the ladder as a railing, she raised herself uncertainly and hit her head on the locker door. The smell was stultifying, and with every wave, the capsule rocked too freely, a sensation as unbearable as the smell. The assembly should have been right in front of her, but she could see nothing. Putting her arms out, she took a small, shuffling step across the cabinets. Emboldened, she took another. The capsule listed hard, snapping the hatch shut. Everything was now black. Lush was thrown backward into the ladder, righted, then heaved forward. Her foot shot out for balance and instead sank into a certain softness. With a yelp of terror, she dropped. There was a struggle. Wet, wriggling warmth. Kicking and clawing her way free, she retreated, gagging, disoriented, crouching against the wall. A faint groan. Uh. Hello? She managed again. Uh. Another groan. She inched forward through the puddle of vomit. A body, clothed, breathing, but bound up by rope. The old man braced himself against Lush as he limped up the stairs. His eyes bulged from the effort. He'd insisted they clean themselves off in the surf. His vomit had embarrassed him deeply. But now his teeth chattered. The suit Lush had found for him was baggy, making him look only more defeated. A lesion ribbon from beneath his ear where a chunk of white hair had been torn out. 
His kneecap had had to be reset. Cal trailed morosely, seeming too shocked to cry. One of her eyes was swollen shut, and there was massive bruising around her throat that Lush was privately concerned might grow to obstruct her breathing. The three didn't speak. Topping the stairs, Lush was the first to round the corner into the hall, so it was she who caught the weapon's opening barrage. It blew her and the old man back into Cal, and all three stumbled down the landing. This probably saved their lives. A second barrage followed shortly, raining powder and debris over top of them. Stop firing, you idiot! The old man roared. Stad, you goddamn idiot! Stop that nonsense this fucking instant! There was silence. Who's there? Stad called out. The old man rolled his eyes. Who do you think, you asshole? Arcady? My hand. Lush whimpered. She was grappling with the stump of her arm, which spasmed from her control. The hand rested beside her on the stairs, helpless as a fish. Breaths were torn out from her, and for that moment, this was the only sound in the hall. Lush guided Cal and Arcady through the procedure. First, to fashion a tourniquet from the straps of the emergency kit, then a braiding, cleaning, and debriding the tissues. She couldn't keep from screaming, but she was afraid to put herself under and not wake up. Only when the sealant had set and withheld the release of the tourniquet did Lush administer herself a booster of analgesics, antibiotics, and medical-grade hallucinogen. She lay back on the couch, her head in S's lap. Woo! She said, more to SOH her little audience than anything else. A dumbed morning light conspired at the vines. And where's my little hand gone off to? Stead, who had been standing over the gathering at the couch, feigned vigilance and set the bag on her belly. Lush held it up at the light and chuckled. Tell them, Arcady. She faltered. Tell them exactly what you told me. Arcady wiped his brow as he retreated to the armchair. The cushion seemed to please him unduly after a few minor adjustments. If you think it'll help, he said, then turned to S. I'm sorry, we've not been introduced. I'm Dr. Morosevich, the project's chief physicist. Former chief, that is. S smiled vaguely. So you're not the rescue party? <laughs> no, far from it. An unpleasant story, our coming here, and ultimately irrelevant. In short, the agent had us tied up and tossed into a capsule. However, the most important thing is to understand that we're not where we think we are. Even I'd fucking figured that out. Stad cut in grimly. But what I'm trying to tell you is that we're not in the past at all. Arcady went on impatiently. We're in the future. Quite far in the future, apparently. He gestured to the window. If you bother to look out, it's far enough in the future that everything is just ruins all over again. Although count me shocked at how stalwart these couches have proved to be. Arcady removed his glasses and rubbed the bridge of his nose. Watching him, everyone seemed to have forgotten to breathe. The key discovery, he explained, came amidst that frenzied final push. We seemed so close to something extraordinary, but time, it turned out, is like light, defined by one severe limitation. It goes in one direction only. It might progress at different speeds, of course. This was all included in relativity. In, in fact, there, there could be a sufficient difference in speed so as to give the illusion of traveling back. But in an absolute sense, regardless of the advances we made with our drivers, one could not. To most, this seems obvious. Even a child must observe it. Arcady continued. And it seems the suspicion was nothing new. It's sprinkled throughout countless books and movies in the form of countless paradoxes where the time traveler kills himself or kills his parents. It's always a bloody business, but in this indirect manner was this suspicion of impossibility. You see, the agent... He shuddered, looking over the four carefully. He is a man of fixed ideas. The project, as he saw it, would adapt or die. We had an advantage slimmer than we wanted, but an advantage. We knew something the other compounds did not, but how to leverage that into a true hammer, that was difficult to see. His idea was grandiose. If there was no longer hope of correcting our course, the course of civilization, then the only hope would be to start anew. An arc, Arcady said, spitting out these last words in distaste. 
His figure, of course, not mine. A first wave to start from the ruins. He gestured loosely with his hand. To rebuild and band together the savages left. Then a second wave. To enjoy the fruits of our labor some millennia down the road. For a moment, no one spoke. So, we're stuck then? Hess said hollowly. I suppose that's the bottom line, yes. Arcadia said, looking them over with sympathy. But that doesn't really make any sense. S said. Why us? If we're to rebuild civilization, why trick us into it? There are plenty who'd gladly escape the shit they're in, and what's to say we don't off ourselves and fuck his welcoming party? Ah, that's the question now. What to do? Arcady said, leaning back. A complicated man, the agent. Or is he? I suppose initially he's most concerned with clearing his books, so to speak. Me? I found out about his first shipment of colonists. That's all of you. From poor Cal, and I smelled the rat. That damned the both of us in his eyes. He squeezed the arms of the chair. I'm sure you all might guess at his reasons for choosing you. There's surely at least one reason accorded each of us, but his plans aren't biblical. No, there's no one male and one female thing or whatever. There, there'll be many, many more capsules, I suspect, and not all of them unwilling. A true exodus. <laughs> at this, he chuckled. Stad leaned the weapon against the wall, scowling. The bastard. He hissed. He tried to sit back on the couch, but S splayed herself across it, blocking him. The future. <laughs> Lucia erupted, her voice quailing off. Oh, God. Wailed Cal. There's nobody to feed Mr. Scuda. He'll just starve in his cage. She burst into incongruous tears. No longer able to follow the conversation, Lucia's eyes had welled with emotion. The walls. She broke in before falling to a soft, rolling laughter. The morning light showed the hallway curving away in both directions about the rotunda below. Along its length, the mural had revealed itself. Where Lush gazed adoringly, there above the couch, was an intricate portrait of the capsule itself. So, it is a temple after all. She panted. <laughs> this is right where we're supposed to be. Our whole story is there and there. Her breath slowed. Stad traced over the paint with his finger. Cal was helping Arcady from the chair, and S gently retired Lucia's head and rose. It's like we were the voices in his head that he couldn't bear. And what he used for a machine. Little capsules of light to each of us going out. <laughs> With a cackle, she tossed the bag and her hand across the room. Though her lips continued to move, she turned again quiet, her eyes gradually losing focus. The voices of her companions spiraled from meaning, instead compiling themselves in pyramids of mystery beneath the echoes of the tide. In truth, she was already beyond the walls, in the roadbeds and paths twining the hills, in the ruins that sank into the endless rolling expanse like cold, dead hands. It was innocently conceived, this vision, but she felt nonetheless as she had cowering there in the vestibule, that same tug to where she could not know. Where's the Door is a production of Bib Media and is produced by Leslie King, Joe Masiri, and Carlos A. Molina. This episode features the writing of Jeffrey Barkin and Jax Lepage, the poetry of Alicia Giacchetti and Tyler Lawrence, and the voices of Hadas Potsholder, Gregory Karras, Catherine Krauss, Alicia Giacchetti, Tyler Lawrence, and Ezra Stead. This episode was edited by Lorenzo Maldonado. Logo design by Matt Davis. Theme music by Jeff Huberman. Be sure to check out all our episodes at bibmedia.tv. And to make a contribution to the podcast or submit work of your own for consideration, please feel free to email us at thedoor at bibmedia.tv. Who's there? Dr. Essen. Dr. Essen who? 
This conversation won't prove productive for either of us. Please come over here, sit your big ass down, and stay the fuck out of sight for the next 40 minutes.